His question hung in the air over the disciples. Their nervous answers brimmed with uncertainty. Some say John, others Elijah, Jeremiah, a prophet. But you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Good morning. Uh, for those of you who haven't had a chance to meet me, I'm Doug Marler. I come to New Life Manitou through the upper room. And i um, going to read just a couple of scriptures today that are uh, going along with Evan's sermon. Uh, the first one, Psalms 27 and verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And the next one is in Romans 7, verses 21 through chapter 8, verse 2. And uh, I think it's interesting to note that in the, when the Bible was written, there weren't these chapter divisions. And so it just flows right into uh, chapter 8. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And then the last uh, reading is from John chapter 8, verses 12 through 14. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and I know where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Well, praise the Lord. It's a great honor to introduce to you Evan Redall. He's been, on, he's been around New Life for years and years on staff the last four years, and he's opening up our sermon series, which is called, Who Do You Say I Am? The Sayings of Jesus from the Book of John. So please welcome Evan Redall. Thanks, guys. Um, my name is Evan, and you guys, I don't know, some of these people in this room, I know you guys, but I want to just take a moment just to get familial, get cozy with one another, feel it out. We'll talk about the Word of God, and, and we'll do some application parts of it. Um, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me at New Life Manitou. I am a, a full-time pastoral staff with New Life Downtown, so um, I've seen a number of you there, and it's great, and I, I just love what's going on here. And Joe and the family, congratulations again on little Theo. Um, he stole some of my thunder. I'm, I'm such a nerd that I looked up, as soon as I saw the name of the child, I looked it up, because I was like, what does this mean? Anybody else just fascinated by name meanings? Uh, so he already, he already took the one with, in Greek, it's God, uh, lover of God. In Hebrew, his middle name is Jude, and it's praise. And then Kirkendall, who knew, but it's somebody, it's Dutch, or someone who lives by the church in the valley. And if you think about Manitou and everything that's going on here, we got these praising lovers of God who live by the church in the valley. And it's just, 
you stamped it, like you nailed it with that name. Um, yeah, so I, when I saw it, I was just like, yes, well done. Like I think with that kind of name, his head's gonna be on a bust someday just because it's so strong and good. Um, I, I am married myself, my wife Karen is here in the front row and we've been married for seven years almost now. Um, and we have one little boy who's downstairs and not crying yet, so that's great. Uh, he is almost two, his name is William. Um, a little bit about me, I was from East LA, and uh, oh, I, th I thought that was a shout out in the back. No, he's just making noises. Uh, moved here when I was 10 up to Monument, Colorado, um, which was quite different than East LA. Uh, grew up there, went, started getting involved in TAG. Was anybody a TAG kid in this room? I see one, yeah, yes, yes. So when it was called TAG, it's the New Life Youth Group, and that's really the only thing I've went to. I, this marks, I've been to now to New Life Manitou as many times as I've been to New Life North in the last five years because of attendance at this service, so. Um, but I, we, uh, was led just through love of God through high school um, to a school in England called Capernray, uh, and it's just a one-year Bible school um, that rocked my world. Uh, I just I fell in love more so with God than I already was, but also just with some of the ways of God. Like I didn't like reading before I went, but there was no TV except for one in the library that you can turn on from nine to nine thirty for BBC World News, and like that was the only entertainment we got. And we had like an hour or two of reading every day, uh, and it just totally flipped my appetite for for reading and for studying, and it was so good. And then that led me to go to this uh, this big city called Portland, Oregon, um, where I spent the next uh, few years studying the Bible still. And did my undergrad in biblical studies and theology and psychology uh, at a school called Multnomah. And, and that was great. And then Portland helped me in these kinds of contexts, either with downtown or Manitou, with your Manitoid weirdness, I'm told. Um, like, because the, the slogan is like, keep Manitou weird, right? Like, that's what they say. Did I, an amen in the front row. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it weird. Portland was like that, but it was, it was like that, you know, and it had babies with a giant city. And so it was this huge keep Portland weird, and so much that they plastered it, like, on billboards on the highways. And just these huge signs of, like, we are so proud of our weirdness. But the thing was, everybody was so weird that I was the one who felt weird there, because I stuck out. Because, like, I didn't wear tie-dye, I didn't have a big mountain man beard, I can't even grow a big mountain man beard, I don't know how to slack line, like, I just couldn't, I couldn't keep up. So I was the weird one in this weird culture, and it was, it was all so much fun. Because uh, the thing that you guys all have going for you is the community and food. Um, because places like Manitou, just, you guys know how to do it, right? Uh, so um, that led me back here eventually after, uh, after school and um, got plugged in with an evening service that Glenn Packiam was leading, and which is what became New Life Downtown, which became kind of the first of what these congregational models are that were churches of New uh, of parishes, congregations of New Life Church. So, um, so that's what's landed me here, and so I've been a pastor now, like I said, for four years with New Life Downtown. Uh, I get to be one of the executive pastors with Downtown in charge of groups and community and all of that. So now we know each other a little bit more. Um, we're jumping in today uh, to a story and to the Gospel of John, and we're, we're taking this series from today up until Easter, and it's going through what they call the I Am Statements of John. So if you want to follow along with me, you can open up to John chapter 8 and 9, because that's where we'll lands today. Um, but a brief history of the I am statements of John is that in John there are seven statements and we'll, we'll kind of combine them so it's a six-week series where Jesus says I am and then fill, fill in the blank. So I am the light of the world is what we're focusing on today. I am uh, the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the way, the truth, and the 
life, and he's making these I am statements. Uh, and to really understand what John's doing, I, w- I wanna first talk through what is the context of Jesus saying I am and then whatever he's saying, and then talk, but how do, how do we enter into that part of the story? So um, I wanna start with a classic story. Uh, this has probably happened to you. This was in college for me. Um, I was a little dweeb in college. Um, I was just coming into my own. I had just gotten rid of my bowl haircut with the middle part. Um, anybody? No one else? Somebody. I see a grimacing over there as though you had it, like back in the day. Like, yes, the bowl cut with the middle part. Uh, so I was just coming out of that, and we, we, we were at school, and do you know that moment in life, and some of you this really frustrates you, where you walk in, um, well, more so when you're watching a movie and somebody walks in in the middle of that movie and then just starts asking you questions all about the movie? Like, does anybody absolutely hate that? Like, you're just watching it, you're having a good time, and then your spouse or friend or roommate comes home, and they're all saying, oh, what's going on? Oh, what's happening here? Who's that character? Why are they important? What happened? What, what does that mean? And you just go, dude, shut it! Like, we're, start at the beginning, don't ask questions, either sit down and be quiet or whatever. And so these guys, these innocent college freshmen in Bible College in Portland were watching The Family Man with Nicolas Cage. Has anybody seen this one? It's a fairly wholesome movie, right? It, I mean, it, it highlights and praises commitment to family and real satisfaction being in, kind of being satisfied with, with, with little instead of with much. And uh, it juxtaposes his life as super successful and rich but single and kind of like a playboy kind of character. Uh, and Nicolas Cage being very satisfied with wife and kids and working at a tire shop and all of that. I had no context for this movie. But at the same moment, I, uh, I had a very close friend who had her her parents were going through a divorce. Um, the dad had chosen to stay in this adulterous relationship and had left the mom and I was, it was just, it was heartbreaking for her and as a dear friend, it was heartbreaking for me. And so the idea of like, you know, like cheating on your spouse was like really riled up in me. And I walk into these guys' room right when they're getting to this scene and his alternative life in this movie and he's contemplating cheating on his wife. And I just walk in, hey guys, what's going on? And I just look in the 10 second sound clip, have no idea what this movie is. And then I just go berserk on them. These poor souls, I just, it wasn't like the, hey, you're kind of annoying because you're asking questions. I, I kind of went crazy on them and just started going, I can't believe you guys are watching this. I can't believe you think adultery is entertainment. How dare you think that, ah! And I just let off on them and then left just walked out, and I couldn't take it anymore. It was a sensitive spot, but I just saw this snippet, had no idea what was going on, and then just left. Um, I told this story to my wife this weekend, and she's like, oh, did you ever go apologize? I was like, no, I don't even know who it was. It's like, <laughs> they were freshmen, and I'd been there for a year, and I just, just ah! And, and so I'm, if they're listening to the podcast ever, I'm really sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> The whole point of that is to say, to understand where we're at in the story is pivotal to understanding what's going on in the story. And we can parachute into John, and I can just say, hey, turn to John chapter 8, and we can start looking at the text. But there is an entire book of John, eight chapters leading up to that, that we need to see the context in what John is writing. And then even before John's writing, there's an entire Old Testament context that he is pulling on themes and story and narrative and metaphor from the entirety of the Old Testament. And if we don't understand that, it's like me walking into this room going, what's going on? Like, I'm frustrated with this, I can't believe this. Well, th- All right, let's see a little bit of the context where we're falling into, and then we'll go from there. So. 
I am the light. There are two themes when Jesus says in, in John chapter 8, and he repeats the statement in John chapter 9. There's two statements that he's making, and he says, I am the light of the world. And he says it in both chapters, to, in, the, in the very beginning of both chapters. And there's two themes that arise out of him saying this. The first is light, and then the second is uh, the I am part of the statement. So um, the light of the world. Contextually, in the Gospel of John, um, Light starts in the very beginning of the, the, the whole thing. That almost every chapter has a reference to light. John creates his entire narrative of his gospel around the theme of light. So Jesus coming and going, he's constantly marking when is it? Is it night or is it day? Is it bright out or is it dark? When, when, the cross, um, when Jesus goes to the cross, it's, it's night and they went out. And, and he uses light and darkness as a theme throughout the entire thing to set the mood and to set the tone of what's happening in his gospel. And it starts in John chapter one, uh, one through five, it's the very beginning. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and with, without him, nothing, not anything has been made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So light, right there, verse four starts. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So his first theme that he presents, if we're looking at John, and he's saying, I am the light of the world. Light in the book of John spans through the entire book. And it starts right there, chapter 1, verse 4. He starts bringing this theme of light. Now, if you have read uh, the, through the scriptures before, a lot of us know, and some of us might start hinting at, in the beginning was the word is very thematically written, and John is paralleling it with Genesis chapter 1. So not only is, when we land in John 8, is he looking at the rest of the book of John and saying there's a whole theme of light and darkness, good and evil, but he's pulling on the entirety of the Old Testament starting in Genesis 1, one verse, uh, chapter 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. The first thing, God creates the heavens and the earth, and this is important to see, and the first thing that he creates after the heavens of the earth is light. The existence, the presence of light. And a lot of, uh, of Bible scholars will look at Genesis um, in the creation story in chapter one, and what he does is he takes six days to create, and what he creates in, in day one, two, and three, he then starts forming and ordering in day four, five, and six. So what you actually have in Genesis one is God creating light before there's even a sun or a moon. It's not a presence of fire, it's not a flame, it's not the sun in the sky, it's not the stars. Light in its essence, is just this presence of God hovering over the waters of the deep, and he creates it. It's the very first thing. And in this creation story where God is creating and then he's bringing order from the chaos and from, from the formless and the void, light is the very first thing that's introduced to start bringing order to that chaos. So God, just by very, the very exposure, he creates the heavens and the earth, formless and void, and then he brings light, he illuminates, he reveals what that is, and starts ordering and forming and bringing order out of that chaos. 
So when John is speaking in 8, and, and Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world, he's pulling, John as a whole is writing, and he's saying, all through my gospel, there's a narrative of light. And guess what? Because the whole of the gospel is pointing towards Jesus, and because the whole of the Old Testament is pointing forward towards Jesus, looking for Messiah, he's pulling on those themes too. So he starts, and this idea of light, this theme of light is throughout the entirety of the scriptures. If we look at the end of it all, Revelation also written by John. John also talks about that, that in that day to come, there'll be no sun, moon, that the Lord will be the light of the people. So from beginning to end, and right here in this middle in the Gospel of John, light is this huge theme, the light that reveals, the light that starts bringing order out of the chaos. The other thing that John is saying here, the other statement he's making is the I am part of it. The two themes, it's the light and it's the I am. I am, we start seeing back in the book of Exodus. So Genesis with light in the very beginning. Exodus is where we start seeing the, the very first kind of given name of God. And it's Moses at the burning bush, right? And he's out in the wilderness and he's being told by God, go back and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And he says, now if they ask who sent me, who should I say? And he says, the I am. Tell them that the I am has sent you. And, and, and it's, it's this moment that's not just God names himself, but compared to all the other gods of, of ancient history who stay far off oftentimes. Maybe they have a name, but it's the God of, you know, it's Ra, the, the sun god, or it's the god of this, or it's the god of that. God personalizes himself, and he says, I am. And then from there, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, that name, the I am, is used for the name of the Lord. In fact, in your Bibles, um, if you're in the Old Testament and you ever see a capital L-O-R-D where the entire name Lord is capitalized, the translators have, have made that significant for us because that's the use of I am. So they're referring to God as Lord in that relational way, but the personal relationship which, which he reveals himself in Exodus as the I am, he, he, they're constantly saying, and the I am God, Yahweh, Yahweh, which is that translation, Yahweh God, Yahweh God, the I am. So when Jesus comes in John chapter eight, and he's making this statement of, I am the light of the world. He's pulling on themes. John is writing and he's recognizing the themes that are going on. And Jesus, in the whole of creation, and the narrative of scriptures, he's bringing it forth and he's saying, I am. He's personalizing it. He's, he, he's uniting himself with the idea that he is God. He's taking on that, that revelation. He's taking on that identity. And then he's stating this fact of himself. I am the light. From the beginning it's been until the end, it is the goodness. I am the light. And, and uh, the light as well, it's interesting because the light's created so in Genesis, but then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you see, starting in, in, uh, in Exodus and then through the rest of it, when the light of God is there, it, it signifies the person, the presence, the glory of God. Who God is is signified by light. So, and, and when they're wandering in the wilderness, it's the pillar of light that guides them. When, when the presence of God fills the temple, it's the light of God that descends upon it. Um, the theme continues in the Mount Sinai. When Moses goes up, the light and the smoke and the fire descend upon it. And he comes down and he's, his face is radiating with light because he's met with God and seen him face to face. So the person, the presence, the glory of God is always associated thematically with the idea of light 
who God is, where he is, the light is there. It's, it, it's, it's united, it's the, it's the same thing. God is light, light is God. And, and, and so when you see that going through all of it, um, it's just an, it's an interesting note. Just like me telling off all those young students, uh, those poor souls, that like you guys have no idea what you're doing. Contextually, we need to understand that when, when Jesus is making these I am statements, the, the first part, I am, he's associating and relating and saying, identically, I am God, when he says I am. And then as he fills it in thematically, he's pulling on some theme from the book of John or from the entirety of the Old Testament and fulfilling it. And so when he says I am light, he's basically taking on this character and this personality of I am the very person and presence of God manifest to you here. I am the light of the world. And in him was the light of life. So as as we go on from there, we need to see in John, it's a, it's a fascinating thing. You guys, if you have your Bibles, open to chapter 8 in John right now, and 8 and 9. And, and I, I, I say if you have your Bibles, if it's on your phone, it's hard to see the spread of it. But chapter 8 of John and chapter 9 of John parallel each other for kind of the movement and the story and what's going on in the two books. In chapter 8, Jesus is in the temple, and he makes the statement, I am the light of the world. And immediately what the, uh, what the Pharisees do who are in the temple is they start questioning his authority. So he walks in, because he's making this huge statement, I am the light of the world. I am God, the presence of light, which always signifies the glory and person of God. I am that too. All of this, me standing right in front of you, should be self-evident. And the thing that the Pharisees do in response is they say, who are you? Where do you come from? Who, are you bearing witness about yourself because you're not allowed to do that? Okay, where are you, what town are you from? Who are your parents? Nothing good comes from Galilee. And they start questioning his authority and they basically make it into a case and say, prove it. And the thing about light is light is self-evident. <laughs> if you see light, you can't say, well, light's not here because it's just this, it bears witness about itself. And, God, and Jesus says that. He said, it's, I'm, it's self-evident right now that I'm here. I'm the light of the world. And if you want a second witness, the Father testifies about me. Well, where is he? And where, who are you? And where do you come from? And where are you going? And they just make it this whole court case, and they get so riled up that they pick up stones and try to stone him, and he ends up going out of the temple because of that. So just narratively think, I am the light of the world. They get super ticked off. They question the authority of it. They come against it. And then they, they basically kick him out, but I mean, he chose to left, so they tried to kill him. As he's walking out of that, beginning of chapter nine, think of the flow of this. He passes a man who was blind since birth. John chapter nine. And the disciples ask, who has sinned? This man, his parents, obviously, if there's something wrong, sin must be involved. And he says, no one has sinned. This has happened because to show the glory of God. And he, he spits on the, the dirt and makes some mud and puts it on the man's eyes and tells him to go and wash at the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And he goes and washes, and then, and then people see him, and they go, wait, wasn't this the blind guy? The one blind since birth? No, it couldn't be. And they start questioning his identity. So they take him to the Pharisees in John chapter 9. And they, they start questioning, are you the one who's been blind, who's been begging? Are you that same guy? And, and you start seeing these parallels of Jesus saying, I am the light, I am the light, bearing witness, and then they're starting to ask this blind guy, bear witness about yourself. Are you really the one who was blind this whole time? Because in obedience, he responded to Jesus and took the spit, washed his eyes, the miracle happened, but he had never seen Jesus to that point. And he goes, 
And the Pharisees are questioning him, and they question him to the point of, you know, Jesus saying, my father has sent me. It's one of those, like, okay, the father in heaven, you can't really see him and go get him. But this blind guy, you can totally go get his parents. So they send out some people to get his parents to bring him back just to bear witness about who he was. Is this really the blind guy? Is it really the one that we've seen our entire lives begging? And the parents go, yeah, but he's old. Ask him, ask him yourself. Like he can, he can tell you if he was blind or not. And they get so frustrated over the matter of him bearing witness about what had happened that they end up kicking him out of the temple too. And as he's walking out of that temple, he runs into Jesus again. And Jesus says, he goes through the whole, you've been cleansed, and he tells him, the one, the light of the world, the life of man, that's me, that's the one that you're hearing, it's the one that you're seeing, go, be healed, believe in me, and he proclaims this faith in Jesus. And these two stories, I think, are uniquely paralleled, and we need to see them as this, because it's the person of God as presence and the light, that theme, continually. And that light is present and the Pharisees come against that and they said, prove it. We don't, we don't receive your authority. And they, they kick him out. They, they, they try to stone him. And then as he's leaving, another man he runs into. And that man takes the testimony of the light, receives the miracle, follows through, goes back into that same temple, and they kick him out too because now he's bearing witness about this light. And so thematically, we, we, I just want to set that up because I think, I think it, it gets down to something that's a question for us. The light reveals what is in the darkness. And for the Pharisees, their darkness is their self-righteousness. They've propped themselves up and they've said, we fall the way. You know the reason that they get super ticked off at the blind man and Jesus at that moment? Because they didn't keep the Sabbath. He made mud on the Sabbath. He put it on his eyes on the Sabbath. He healed on the Sabbath. How dare you heal on the Sabbath? This man must not be from God because he broke the Sabbath law. And it's this witness that comes forth because what it's doing for them is saying we followed all of the rules and our self-righteousness is our light that we live by. But for this man, there must be sin, right? He's blind from birth, so there must be sin somewhere. But it's his very obedience and belief in God, Jesus, who is the light, that ends up bringing him healing. So as we're going through this story, I just, I want to ask this question, What is it that we do fear about the darkness and the light? The light, the idea that the light illuminates, let's personalize this now. The light illuminates what's inside of us. It illuminates what's around us. If it's really the life of men, it's this, I'm going to illuminate. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says, Lord, your word is a light into my feet and a lamp into my path. Not only your person in your presence, but then it also starts illuminating what's around you. Just like in that that Genesis story. And then that illumination, now I'm going to see what is, what is good and what is bad. What is righteous, what is evil. What is of God, what is not of God. What sets the mark, what falls short. I'm going to start seeing these parts of myself that maybe I don't like when they actually come out into the illuminated light. I'm going to start seeing the world around me differently because now you're showing me what's actually good, what's actually required, what, how actually we should be walking in this way of life. And sometimes we respond to this question, well, what, what do we do with this light? Sometimes it's, yes, Lord, come and search me and know me, know my inmost thoughts. Reveal unto me my wicked ways. Let me repent. And sometimes I think 
we reject the light, the way of God, the person of God, this person Jesus, because we fear condemnation. We reject the person of God because we fear condemnation. The Pharisees were self-righteous in their own eyes. But this man, he was already, his whole life already condemned because he was, he was a sinner since birth, of course. He's a sinner because obviously he's blind, which means there's sin, and, and he's already standing this way, and so the freedom that comes from God is already present. But God's light is a different light. It's a different light than we're used to. And I wanna, I wanna start shifting our attention towards this table. If the person and the presence of God is represented in light, and Yahweh is the person of Jesus and he associated with himself, then he then shines and shows us the way to live, and this table represents that way. And I think too many times what happens in life, too many times is that we, we start getting back into this pharisaical, I have to do it right. I have to do it right. I have to do it right. And because I'm not doing it right, I, 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 we take on this shame of not just that I did wrong, but that I am wrong. And the shame starts condemning us. And Jesus, the light, we fear coming to this and start, because, because there's too many, and even too many Christians in the world, that it's, it's about the right. Are you doing right? Are you doing right? Are you doing right? And then Jesus comes on the scene and shakes the whole thing up. He shakes the whole thing up because what we see in this person and represented by this table is a God, is a God who, who brings salvation, that that light is the life of man. John 3.16 is in the same book. We know John 3.16. It's our jam, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. How about John 3.17? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In order that the world might be saved through him. Not to condemn it, but to save it. And we get to this point where we come in communion and we come in confession, we come into Christian community. And we're declaring, God, you are the light of the world. Jesus, you are God incarnate. You show us the way to live. You show us a different way to live. And not a way that ends up condemning, but in a way that ends up saving if we will receive it. But Lord, and I wanna, I wanna bring this into a real kind of pastoral moment. There is so much stuff in my life that I don't really want anyone to see it. I wanna keep it in the darkness because of shame, because of guilt, because of what embarrassment or failure or, or Whatever it is, I, I had a number of conversations this past week about depression. And depression, uh, depression and, and a friend of mine that has even led to suicidal thoughts. And how for him, it was the, if I keep this in the darkness, then I'm kind of the master over it and not over it over me. But it was this thing that he said, I never told anyone because, because what would happen if the light saw it? If I, if I shared it, if I confessed it as I came before the Lord, if I confessed it within the context of Christian community, what would the response be? And, and I think we get comfortable because we know that Jesus, when we confess, it's this assumed grace, right? Lord, if I am faithful to confess, you are faithful to forgive. So I'll freely confess every week at this table because we're receiving and we understand and we know, Jesus, I love you. And then we, we go, okay, and your church you also commend us, Paul, to confess to one another. 
And I, I wanna ask and I wanna challenge us that as, as we come to this table today, to start thinking through how do we as the people of God who in Matthew says you are the light of the world, how do we become more like the light that has shown in Jesus? The light that says I do not come to condemn but I come to save. How do we take that on? How do we become the people of God so that if someone was to ever to confess to us, the predisposed expectation and answer within our souls is grace and it's mercy and it's forgiveness. What would that start doing to the fear that keeps us from confession, that keeps us from coming into the light, that keeps us from making plain and seen and saying, Lord, the person and presence of who you are, I want you to see this. The chaos in my life, just like in Genesis, and you started ordering the chaos by exposing it to the light and to who you are. I want you to see the chaos in my life and I want you to start affecting it. And I'm gonna bring it into the light for that purpose. And I'm gonna confess it at this table and I'm gonna confess it with one another. And this is the challenge. Can we be like Jesus more? Not to condemn the world but to help bring salvation to it through the love of God. That we would reflect Jesus, that we would too be the light of God, to take on more of a posture, more of a pre-assumptive nature that says, whatever you're going to say, whatever darkness I'm about to hear, my, my spouse to spouse, friend to friend, roommate to roommate, stranger on the street to myself, whoever it is that we're talking to, whatever you're about to bring into the light before me, I'm gonna respond like Jesus did. And it's gonna be with love and it's gonna be with grace, and it's gonna be with acceptance, and it's gonna be bringing this message of who God is. Because the Pharisees, they get caught up on their own self-righteousness. You didn't do it right. And Jesus says, because you say that you see, you stand condemned still. But this blind man, the blind man ended up seeing the true light of the world because of his confession and saying, I need this. I need this great salvation. So he professes it forth. And salvation comes to him, and sight comes to him, and he sees it, and he bears witness to it. And then we're supposed to go and do likewise. I just know there's a few people in my life, and, and, and my wife is one of them, that when, whatever I say, because we have these things inside, I, I wanna hit this again. We have these things inside that we don't want people to see. They're the things that we have kept from everyone. And they're not, it's not always sins, I mean, sometimes it is. And sometimes it's just, just fear and embarrassment. It's shame that says we're failures. It's, it's deep depression that we don't really want to tell anybody about. Because what will they think of me? Because our fear is that whatever I bring into the light will end up being condemned. But the gospel says whatever you bring into the light will not be condemned. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But as you profess God and your need for God, that he is the light of the world, that Jesus is God, our Savior, that he will be faithful to forgive whatever it is. And may we too do likewise. As we come to this table, let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are the light, the light of salvation the light of life. Thank you that you shine in the darkness and you start ordering chaos. Thank you that when you shine on us, we are not condemned. We are saved in Jesus Christ by the blood of the lamb represented in this cup, by your body broken for us represented by this bread.
And Lord, we just pray, would you illuminate in us and to us today yourself. Your testimony is true. You are God. You are good. You are the glory of the creator. You are life incarnate. And we pray that all the things within us as we come to this table, as we profess, as we, as we repent, as we confess, that your light would shine on us, on our thoughts, on our emotions, on our souls, on our persons, that you would shine. And Lord, you are the God that transforms darkness to light. You were the God who did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. And Lord, let us too have the boldness to confess to one another, to be in true Christian community, to live freely in the light as children of the light. Because we know that the response, and let it be true in us, that our response to everyone else would be grace, would be forgiveness, would be mercy, and by that we would reflect the very light of God given and shown on us. We would reflect it to the world of darkness who needs it. Jesus, you are the light of the world. We thank you. We praise you. Shine on us now. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to say together this prayer of confession to prepare our own hearts to take of the Lord's table. Let's say this together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, in deed, by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.